0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Teddy Tahu Rhodes is one of the most acclaimed operatic voices from this part of the world. He's taken on many iconic roles, from Escamillo, Bizet's glamorous bullfighter in Carmen, to Mozart's bad boy, Don Giovanni. But for a long time, this bass baritone did absolutely everything he could to avoid the stage, until he finally read an unopened letter from someone important, a letter he had stashed away under a window seat in his New Zealand home. And if he'd never opened it, we might never have heard his remarkable voice. Hi, Teddy.
0: Hi, Sarah.
1: <laughs> so, so you started singing in your boys' school chapel choir. What did your voice sound like back then, <laughs> Teddy?
0: I was uh, obviously uh, the quintessential uh, boy soprano and I wasn't particularly good. I always used to audition to sing the first verse of Once in Royal David City at the traditional, you know, church service, Christmas church service. I never got it. <laughs> uh, I always, and that was where my enthusiasm came from because I'd start out in key and I'd always be a tone or so out by the end of it, always high, never flat, always high, because <laughs> I was always so excited about just the thought of singing. But yeah, it was just something which I was you know, deeply passionate about and it was gave me you know, great joy.
1: Being a, a boy soprano, were you ever hassled by your mates for that?
0: Oh, yes. You know, I, look, I uh, was schooled through private boys' schools. So, you know, how many years ago is that now? Uh, I'm 55, so 45, almost 50, 50 years ago when I first started at primary school. It wasn't so bad at primary school, but secondary school, when you first go and you're you know, you're 12, 13, and your voice isn't broken, and I'm singing as a boy soprano in the church choir, and um, I'd walk down the, the chapel aisle, and you'd get the seniors calling you highballs, for example. That was our that was the name for, you know, soprano, boy sopranos, and it was something which, I don't know, for some reason it never really worried me, you know, because I loved doing it, and I was a sports sports person as well, so I sort of uh, I sort of combined the two, and I guess it gave me a bit of credibility at a boys' school.
1: You, you're certainly not a soprano now, Teddy. How weird was it for you when your voice broke? What was that like?
0: You know, my mum's English, and we went. I was about thirteen, and uh, we went back to England to visit my family, or her family, and was in my first year of school in secondary school. From the time I left to the time I came back, my voice had gone from being a boy soprano to literally having dropped down into my well, my boots as to what my voice is today. <laughs> so, you know, I have to say, going back to school was kind of cool because I had I transitioned, you know, I transitioned into the, into the low voice area. And um, it's strangely, actually, I went from being, I guess, Slightly bullied as a boy soprano, to revered and, in a way, having the low voice of the school. So, in my last year, we used to take, um, used to have lunch in the big dining hall at school. It was a very traditional old school, and I'd have to say grace just before lunch, and uh, I'd say, you know, for for these and all his mercies, may God's holy name be praised. And the entire school would say oh, "Amen" as low as they <laughs> as low as they possibly could. Of course, it wasn't that low, but it, it kind of became this. It was this weird transition that I went through. So, anyway, yeah, it just is what it is. I didn't even notice it.
1: You didn't even notice it. You don't no. sort of go through that squawky phase where you don't know what's going to come out once you open your mouth.
0: Uh, no, no, it's just sort of because I, I guess because I was away and. I, you know, it's a funny thing. You don't even remember your voice breaking. Well, I, I can't. It just sort of, one day it was, and one day one day it was a boy soprano, and the next day it was kind of <laughs> bass, you know. <laughs> it is what it is.
1: Outside of choir at school, Teddy, you made your stage debut at 12 in The Wizard of Oz. Who did you play in that?
0: I played the Tin Man, and I can still remember it vividly. I had a uh, the, the arts teacher had... Uh, fashioned a tin man suit out of corrugated cardboard and painted me in silver and it was an all boys school so all the female parts were played by boys and dorothy was played by the the head of the, the head of the boys choir or the chapel choir at that stage and um, yeah it was it was it was a big event of the year and so i think i just got put into the role it wasn't something i auditioned for you're good enough you can do it and up you go and i still remember standing on the 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 stage of primary school. Actually, it's funny because back then it seemed like such a big room and such a big stage, and I've I've been back to my primary school since. And I don't know if everyone else has noticed, but when you go back to primary school and you're big, suddenly you're big, everything's really small, like the rooms, the height of the rooms are really small and the big hall was really small. And But, you know, back then it seemed like this massive event. Yeah, it was It It was. was fun. I still remember it vividly. It's still one of my favourite shows, actually. It has that... If I only had a heart. You know, it's that great little tune. I should remember more of it, but there you go.
1: It was it was just you and your mum and your little sister at home together. Tell me more about your mum, Teddy. What did she do for work to support the family? Mum
0: grew up, you know, through the war in, in the UK uh, initially, and eventually my mum and dad ended up in New Zealand. But I never really knew my dad. I'd met him once for a day. So I grew up with my mum and she was, she was a very hard worker and she really made a living cleaning houses, basically. Um, and looking after the elderly, uh, she'd sort of done a little bit of nursing in early days in New Zealand and so she would spend weekends away caring for elderly in their home. But most of the time she was really just doing house cleaning for you know, people around Christchurch and, um, yeah, an amazing woman. And I don't feel like I, it's funny, you know, you look back and I don't feel like I missed out on anything. I, I feel like grew up with just mum and that was, that was great. Life was, life was always great. Yeah, but I think as I'm, you know, you, you can certainly look back and appreciate how much, you know, she actually did for me to enable me to get to where I am today, you know.
1: Where does the Tahu in in your name come from? My
0: dad, but it actually goes back further than that, my grandfather. Look, supposedly it was a name that was, um, I think, given to the family. Well, I'm, I'm not Māori uh, or Indigenous to New Zealand, I, it's just a name that I have. Uh, and my father was Terence Tahu, and my grandfather was Tahu Rhodes, and it's just been a name that's been passed down, so... But i I actually love my name. I don't know. I don't play on it. It's just I just love my name. I think it's such a I don't know. Maybe maybe we all love our names. I don't know. But it's something which I feel very I, I cherish it.
1: What about What about the Teddy? Is that short for for Theodore or Edward? Where does that come from?
0: Uh, no, I was um, I was christened Teddy. Which is, again, I've, I am really happy about because I, it's in a funny sort of way. I've met lots of Teddies over the years, more <laughs> recently than in, in the past. because I think it's sort of coming back into fashion a little bit now, the name Teddy. Yeah, but my dad was, as I say, Terence, but for some reason he was called Ted. And they just decided to christen me Teddy. Actually, I've got a funny story. I'd, I'd never met anyone that was christened Teddy. And I was at the... Sydney Airport one day and I went, went through security and suddenly there's a member from the aircraft staff running after me and he comes all the way up to me and says, oh, excuse me, excuse me, I just have to ask, your name is Teddy, is that right? Yes, my name's Teddy. Uh, and he said, were well, you christened Teddy? And I said, yes, I was. <laughs> And He said, "Oh my goodness, you're the first person that I've ever met that was Chris and Teddy because I'm Chris and Teddy." <laughs> so that was that, I've only met one other person that's been Chris and Teddy.
1: So the, the Teddy connection, go.
0: the Teddy connection.
1: <laughs> How much freedom did you have as a as a kid in Christchurch?
0: Oh, I had a lot. Gosh, you know, I would disappear to school and, and Christ. Look, painting a picture. Christchurch was a back in those days it was a pretty quiet sort of town. And even as a five year old I would jump on my bike and be sent off to school riding down the road. It's only a ten minute ride, but of course ten minutes felt like a huge distance in, in those days to a little five year old. But I was given, I guess, complete freedom and I'd disappear to school at seven thirty and, you know, certainly in my early teens, I would end up back at home at six thirty, seven at night and you know, mum would just wait till I got home, you know. And I had a lot of friends who I just grew up with in the neighbourhood, not my school friends, but just we just had this like group of, group of people on the street that we would hang out with and go down the park together and would race each other around the block and the bikes. And it was a freedom, which I don't know whether we'd have, the young kids have so much today. I don't know. I think there's more sort of Fear of the unexpected or unknown out there. I think we were just left to our own devices a lot to make our own entertainment.
1: Back then, what did you what did you have your heart set on doing after school? How did you imagine your future?
0: I thought I would go into farming, and I used to work on sheep farms and cropping farms uh, with my cousin on my cousin's farms during the holidays, school holidays, and. I even spent uh, months and months working on a sheep dipping, uh, you know, truck and machine. And I'd travel around the province of Canterbury, where I came from, for months, you know, doing all the, visiting all these farms and dipping the sheep. And um, I always thought I was actually going to go to a university called Lincoln University and do a commerce degree in agriculture, and uh, that, uh, that's what I was going to do.
1: Well, someone convinced you to, to try out for the New Zealand Youth choir as, as a teenager. How did you feel about that prospect?:
0: I had this fantastic music teacher at school called Peterfield Dodgson, and he and he, you know, he encouraged me to go and audition for the New Zealand Youth choir. It sounded like a terrible idea. But not as
1: fun as sheep dipping? Not as sheep, no.
0: <laughs> Actually, you know, when you put it in that context, no, but that was a pretty cool job, I have to say. Um, but I was, uh, the, the thing about it was entailed, it entailed at least two weeks of every school holidays, the the midterms and second term, um, going and rehearsing at different different parts of the country and then putting on a couple of concerts. And that was because when we only had three terms, it was two two holidays out of your three for the year, and it it just didn't appeal to me. And I, I kind of did it because you know, he wanted me to do it. So I went off and auditioned, and before I know it, I'm selected, and I'm off on my first tour. When I was how old was I? Six to seventeen, I think, when I did it. But in all honesty. I have made some of the very, very best friends of my life in that five years that I was part of that choir. It was unbelievable, an unbelievable experience and gave me the sense of just an absolute love of music going forward and taught me everything I know that effectively enabled me to go forward and and go from doing that to becoming a, a, a soloist
1: well tell me about the the kind of training the the singing lessons you received in those years as a teenager who were your teachers?
0: I had a beautiful dear old teacher called Mary Adams Taylor and she was actually Australian but she had settled in New Zealand and Look, once again, honestly, and I sounded like I wasn't interested in doing this at all, because, but really, I, I kind of wasn't. But I, I had to take singing lessons as a prerequisite for being in the New Zealand youth choir. So eventually, once I got into university, I was doing my commerce degree, and um, I thought, well, look, I'll go to the music department and I'll get in touch with you know whoever it is there and I'll see if I can take some singing lessons and do it as part of my course. And so I tracked this lovely singing teacher down and she said, have you got anything to sing? And I said, well, I can sing this because I've sort of practiced it at home. And she said, oh, I don't think you'd be able to sing that, dear. It's a piece from the Messiah. And I said, well, I'll give it a crack. And anyway, I sang it to her and I still remember her saying, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That was that was very good. It was very good. And. Then I got, so they selected me and put me on the music. So next, before I know it, I'm doing a music degree at the <laughs> Canterbury University along with my commerce degree. And I stayed with Mary for years and years and years.
1: Where would you go for lessons, Teddy, with her?
0: Oh, she, she lived in a little suburban house, a little wooden, a very typical uh, New Zealand Christchurch, you know, wooden bungalow, as we'd call it. And I would rehearse in a tiny spare bedroom she had, um, and she would, you know, bang away on the piano because she was a terrible pianist, a terrible <laughs> pianist. I spent half my time seriously. I spent half my time, but I'd go to get half of the song. She says, "Just a minute, just a minute. I've got to get that right. I've got to get that right." So I was like, "All right." But it, and I, I don't think she'd mind. I, you know, she's dear Mary. She's passed away now. She passed away. At, I think about the age of ninety three. Just the, she had such an influence on my life. But the great thing about it was. And she won't mind be saying this as I if I look to the heavens that she was. Um, I'm not sure she really taught me how to sing, but what she did do was give me principles so I never got too far ahead of myself, and I never did any damage to myself. I was never given anything that I couldn't sing, basically, and it was always she just just sort of guided me and let me be and get me through. Um, and it probably wasn't until I went further on and as I got older, I guess, that I learned what was required, but without those formative years with her, just being gentle and kind and giving me a really great base. Yeah, she, oh my goodness. She was such a sweet lady and her husband, Jack, strangely, just coincidentally happened to be my form teacher at primary school and, um, he would sit in the, um, He'd sit in the kitchen, tiny little kitchen, which was just through the other side of the spare room, and he'd constantly come through saying, Can't understand the word you're singing, can't understand a <laughs> word of it. <laughs> so it was Was that I your was,
1: Kiwi accent, Teddy? Oh, to oh, these two know. Australians, or what was going on?
0: <laughs> I had no idea, but honestly, it was like it was like a comedy situation there. But I look back so fondly and uh, well, now, I'm pumping myself up here, but I, I do get told that my addiction is normally pretty good. And that comes from New Zealand Youth Choir, and I guess having someone <laughs> like Jack constantly badgering me but that my can't understand a word I'm saying. And I think that's strangely, you often hear that actually about a comment about opera that they can't can't really understand what we're saying, even though it's obviously a different language, but I think diction's really important because that's part of the... There's no point singing a song unless you can understand what we're saying, you know?
1: So you were on your way to to finishing this commerce degree for your heady future of accounting and sheep dipping, but still keeping <laughs> a, a toe in the musical world and taking on uh, some competitions. Tell me about hmm. the first big competition you went to.
0: It was a competition called the Dame Sister Mary Leo Scholarship. She was actually Dame Kiri um teacher in New Zealand, uh, who was sort of our, yeah. I guess is our most famous opera singer to come out of New Zealand. I'd only been having lessons for six months. It was at university. And uh, somehow I got entered into this, into this thing. I remember doing my first audition at a, a church hall in Christchurch. And before I know it, After a few months, I'm standing on the stage, I think it was in Wellington in the town hall or something, with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra or someone, one of the big orchestras performing in the final. And there's only six of us. And um, it was for New Zealand's most promising singer. And uh, I must have been 19, I think. I won't mention her name because she's a dear friend and I love you. But I remember I sitting there, uh, someone sitting next to me saying, if there's one person I hope doesn't win this, it's you. That was <laughs> of, Just before the announcement was supposed to be made. Why? Because, because I kind of said, I don't know why I'm here. I don't really want to do this. And I was deadly serious. I had It wasn't my intention to be an opera singer. Or, I mean, I had no thought of being an opera. That just seemed like a wild dream or, you know, And not a word of a lie, within 30 seconds, my name gets announced (laughs) as the winner. And it was, but it was just one of those things I remember. And it was probably a fair call, you know, but maybe that's why I won it. I don't know. Maybe that was why it was, it was just one of those things that no pressure, no fear.
1: Well, you were then offered a, a place at the Guildhall School of Music. How big a deal is the Guildhall in the music world?
0: I didn't know how big a deal it was, I guess, until I got there, because once again, I think being in New Zealand, it was just sort of, I was sheltered from that, I'm not going to say the fame of getting there, but I was sheltered by the the privilege of being there, I guess. Um, so all I did was aud- send an audition tape over and got accepted. Uh, I got accepted because I'd met one of the singing teachers there whom I went and studied with, and I don't think my audition tape was particularly good, but he had heard me sing, and he said he got me over the line. So, um, the 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 training I got there, and the being immersed around these singers and performers, musicians, uh, actors from all over the world that were there, and all you know, all over Europe. So I was performing with Belgians and French and Italians and. Um, It was a select group of about 12 of us that were on this course, and it was a postgraduate diploma in performance. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, But I only stayed a year. Why? (laughs) Well, look, I was married at the time, and um, it just wasn't in our plan. And uh, after one year, I was actually offered a scholarship to stay on, after to go on to uh, graduate onto the opera course, and um you know they they literally chased me back chased me all the way back to New Zealand. I, I think <laughs> what do you mean? Did, they did. I was doing a con- well, I was doing a concert in Salt Lake City as part of my award, which I'd won in another big competition. I'd won uh, back in New Zealand, and I had to do a concert in the Temple Grounds in Salt Lake City randomly. But it was that was great, and I was still getting uh, messages from there from my singing teacher at the time in London, saying. Come back, come back to London, but wasn't to be. And was the, that a
1: hard decision, though, Teddy? I mean, did you did you go to someone for advice? Did you wrestle no. with it, or or how did you make such a big decision about your future?
0: Uh, no, because it was part of my part of our plan and my uh, lovely wife's plan, and um, we. I hadn't, you know, I was wasn't I wasn't young. I was twenty three. I mean, it was young, but not young. You know, I wasn't young enough to be able to make choices and decisions but I was it still wasn't it still wasn't my life's plan I I couldn't see myself succeeding even though I was having a lot of success whilst I was there and interestingly I look back and I think that it was probably the right decision because the opportunities I got at a late seven years later, when I en- ended up going back to singing, um, I would never have. Who knows? I mean, they certainly wouldn't have happened that way. I would have my my transition into being a soloist, if I would have ever made it, had I come out of university, could have been completely different mm-hmm. because the opportunities I got by being in Australia and New Zealand, in a way, were far more. Um, it well, were well, yeah, well, wonderful experiences.
1: But at at that time, you thought you were, were walking away from a career in opera. What did you settle down to doing back home in New Zealand?
0: I uh, got a job as an accountant. And um, before I'd gone to the Guildhall, I'd, I was already working in a bank. I'd worked in Westpac as a corporate accountant. And, yeah, I went back to New Zealand and... It was all doing accounting work. I ended up at a law firm eventually as their trust accountant. <laughs> and did, you,
1: did you let yourself daydream about that other life or were you happily immersed in the world of accounts?
0: I was. I was still singing in New Zealand, so I'd be given opportunities by my local opera company, which was Canterbury Opera at the time, and... I might sing with the Christchurch Symphony or I did other bits and pieces, but it was always pretty small and I would run away from my work during the daytime and just go and do the odd rehearsal and then I'd rehearse at night and, you know, I was still singing, but it was very piecemeal. And um, But the thing is, I had sort of probably the most influential people in New Zealand, past singers and in the music scene, constantly at me saying that I should be doing this. And ultimately, if it wasn't for them, all putting themselves out and, you know, taking a risk on me for no benefit to themselves other than to see me achieve something which they thought I had the potential to achieve you know, I would never have made it here. And it's a, yeah, it was amazing.
1: When you when you look back, Teddy, I wonder what, what you think about that, about why you were pushing so hard against that talent that everyone was telling you that you had. What was that resistance about?
0: I think I had, well, I think I know what it was. I, I was, um, I don't think I ever believed I was good enough. And I think secretly I always wanted to do it. And... People were always telling me that I was good enough to do it, and that I could be doing it. And I think I was always fearful of going out there and actually putting myself out there. And then I didn't, uh, yeah, and if I didn't achieve it, suddenly all hope of doing it was gone. I know that sounds kind of weird, but no, and, and it makes uh,
1: sense if you don't if you don't go for it, you can't fail.
0: Exactly, if you don't go for it, you can't fail. And I think I was. I was never really confident in my ability. I just used to do it i I'm, I'm pretty sure that's always what it was and you know I fought against it. I fought against it for many other reasons as well you know i was um you know even even within my family, my English family, for example, who were in you know lawyers and so forth would say I mean, you're going to get a real job you're not going to when you're studying the guild guild hall. you're just doing this you're going to get a real job, aren't you and um <laughs> Yeah, it was just, wasn't seen as my, in my future.
1: Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Teddy, you'd pretty much turned your back on singing and were working as an accountant in New Zealand, but something obviously happened or I'd be talking to Teddy, the accountant, not Teddy, the opera singer... What was it that finally pushed you onto the stage for good? What helped you say yes to an opportunity that came up here in Australia?
0: So it's a tragic event in my life as well as one which set me on my path, I think. Um, Unfortunately, back in 1997 or early 98, my marriage broke up. I mean, it was a you know very traumatic well for me. It was a very traumatic time in my life, and I look back and you know I've looked back and wondered about it. Um, and then somehow, during that time, once I pulled myself out of the depths of despair, <laughs> I ended up performing in Canterbury Opera, doing a, a role in a in La Boheme actually, and ended up singing one of the main roles. Some I ended up being heard here uh, by someone from Australia. And the word went back that this guy's pretty good. So uh, an amazing woman called Sherilyn Kamoli came over and was going to audition me uh, in New Zealand. And um, on the day I, she flew in from Opera Australia, I sent her a message which was delivered under a hotel door saying, I'm not going to turn up. I've decided not to come to the audition. So, I mean, <laughs> she was recounting that story the other day to me. Anyway, I ended up in Australia about five days later having people begging on my behalf and I had to pay my, you know, get my own way across here and I auditioned and um, they literally offered me a job in a main role uh, starting in three weeks' time on the spot.
1: How did a letter from your your now ex-wife play a role in, in helping you decide to take that leap?
0: Well, this is where, this I think is one of the pivotal moments in my life, um, when my wife had uh, went, broken up, she left me a note. And she probably doesn't know this, but I um, I was never brave enough to read it. And I'd put it away in a window seat in my house and it was just sitting in this window seat unopened. And I was, I'd was i gone back after the audition. I'd been offered this job, you know, with Opera Australia. I didn't know whether to take the job or not. I didn't know how I was going to go and, you know, announced my leaving the job in Christchurch. And I was sitting on the ground on the, my on the carpet on my floor with my flatmate at about two in the morning and I said, What am I going to do? And I said, You know what, I've got this letter in the in the window seat, which my wife left me. I never read it. And she said, Oh my God, you've got to read it. And I said, I don't think I can. She said, I'll read it for you. So she, I went and got it. I gave it to her. And I said, Don't read it to me. You have a read of it. So she read it. And she said, um, oh, I'm going to bring myself to tears. She said, You had to read, you have to read this. And I said, Read it to me. And she said, um, It was just along the lines of about, you've got to follow that dream. And um, it said, it Go and sing. You know, I want you to go and sing. And I just, I literally just, um, that moment, I decided to go. You know, I thought, I went, walked into the office the next morning and I said, I've got to give up and uh, I'm going to go and follow this dream. And um, everyone in the office said, you've got to go and do this. You've got to go and sing on the Sydney Opera House. And I thought, okay, I'm off. <laughs> and um, she would not know, she won't know that. She won't have known that story. She will absolutely not have known the story. Not know yet?
1: that at
0: all. She will not know that story. No. No one – Very. in fact, only probably, I don't know, maybe half a dozen people know that. Uh, and that was the start of the journey. I still had to learn the role. <laughs> I didn't even know the role. Didn't even know I could do it. I still, Honestly, I had to learn this enormous role what, in what three weeks.
1: Role? What was the role?
0: It was um, – Playing a role called Dandini in an opera called La Cenerentola by Rossini, which is basically the story of Cinderella. And there's a bit of a twist to it. I was playing the role of the prince who wasn't really the prince, I was pretending to be the prince. So it was a, honestly, it was a gift. It was a gift of a role for a debut. I had no idea how hard it was. No, I, I didn't even consider it as being a difficult thing to do, but apparently it was. And, uh, Oh my goodness! It was a journey for about four weeks of rehearsal. It was I, I, stories. My goodness! Well, I, tell I,
1: me about the first, the very first music call. How did that go?
0: I was uh, I was in a room, a small room, well, a smallish room. The music call with everyone in the room, and I walked into this room and I I met this great guy called Conal Code, who's a lovely old New Zealand bass and. I sat at the back of the room and he got hold of my arm and he took me up and he sat me in the front row. <laughs> and in walks the conductor whom I had no knowledge of. But it was Richard Bonning, who was um, Dame Joan Sutherland's husband and a very revered Australian conductor. And he was conducting it. <laughs> so thank goodness I didn't know who it was because, well, you know, maybe I'd been nervous. But anyway... My role comes in about, I don't know, 40, 50 pages in, and then it's sort of there the whole time. And everyone's sing- and he starts off the music call. Everyone's singing, and no one's stopped. I get through to my bit, and everyone's waiting for me to sing because I've suddenly come in and taken this main role. And so I open my mouth, and I sing four bars. I can even remember the four bars. And I got to the end of the four bars. And he said, oh, Teddy, Teddy, this is Richard Bonning. He said, just stop there, just stop there. He said, just watch my beat. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, that's it. He hadn't stopped anyone. I said, okay, okay, okay. So I started again. I can feel my heart pumping. And then I sing this aria, which is kind of difficult. I mean, it's really difficult aria. And I got through to the end, um, and there was, you know, spontaneous applause, <laughs> and I never got stopped again. <laughs> and I actually said to him, he had his 90th birthday, um, I think last year. And we all put a bit of a, you know, a, a thing together for him. And I sent a video attachment and I sang the fourth, I sang the first four bars of Cenerentola, And I said, when I first met you, this is what I sang. I sang the fourth bars and you said, hang on, hang on, stop, stop, stop. And I said, I still remember it, but it was without him, I'm not sure I would have gotten through that first opera. So you look at those moments and you see these people that are, my goodness, that, Without whom you wouldn't you know I would not be or we would not be here, you know the people in our lives that have such an influence, and we don't know it until often years later that we wouldn't have we wouldn't have had that success.
1: The singing is is one part, then there's the acting, the moving about on stage. How did you go with that in this role that you had suddenly had to learn? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, was, I think the last review I got in New Zealand was, oh, Teddy's up there, you know, our, our Teddy basically, because I was from Christchurch, and he's very wooden on stage. And <laughs> so I was green. So I, when I came to Australia, well, it was a very choreographed show, and I had like two left feet, I can tell you. <laughs> and But fortunately, the role required me to be slightly bumbling. I was a bit of a bumble, and... I wasn't acting half the time, it was just things that go wrong and the humour came out purely because of that. But there was one session, obviously I was having trouble on stage, you know, relaxing, and I remember we were in the Dame Jones Sutherland room at Opera Australia and uh, we had the choreographer there and the director and the entire chorus and all the soloists, a big full call, and about an hour before the end of the rehearsal they said, you know what, look, we're just going to release everyone." Except Teddy. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. Oh, and they released everyone. They got me. And they, the choreographer and the director spent an hour getting me to walk from one side of the stage to the other. Diagonally, up and down, side to side. Not singing, not doing anything. Just getting me to walk naturally. And I remember going home to my apartment that I was staying little hotel in King's Cross. And I would go home every night just feeling exhausted from the mental side of work and thinking this is going to be it, I'm never going to be asked back. And I would walk down to the Botanical Gardens or Lady Macquarie's chair actually and I would go, it would be dark because it was the middle of winter and I'd go and sit on the steps there and I'd look at the opera house and I'd just sit there for 30 minutes. It was my meditation every night. And then I'd go home, I'd sleep, I'd go back into work, and I'd start again. It was such a challenging, challenging thing to be able to do for me mentally. And then I got to the stage.
1: Well, what kind of state were you in walking onto the stage of of the Opera House on that first night after this incredibly pressurised lead-up?
0: Absolutely petrified. I was petrified. I couldn't believe I was standing on the side of the stage. And it was an all-male chorus uh, at that stage for the for the show. And I was standing backstage with a lot of the older members who became my great friends and supporters. And I was standing there nervous, and one of them just put his hand on my shoulder and said, we've got you back. And um, I walked on stage and it was, that was it. I just felt at home and had two and a half hours of the most... Fun I could ever possibly imagine, and then the curtain came down, and then had my curtain call, and I had no idea how I'd went. It was just, it was just a blast. But apparently, it went quite well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you went on to make uh, many more successful debuts in the states and in other parts of the world, and I guess the thing with with opera is it often involves huge productions, the sets, the costumes, the moving parts. Has it ever all gone terribly wrong for you on stage, Teddy? <laughs>
0: uh, yes. I mean, vocally and and physically, gosh, vocally, I've had some very <laughs> average reviews sometimes. You've got to take the average with the good. Uh, but physically, uh... Yes, look, only in New Zealand (laughs) would you ride a horse in an opera around a football stadium because that's what it was. I was in a rugby stadium on the north shore of New Zealand, and the producers had this amazing idea. And it was an amazing idea. I I was actually just thinking about this that I reckon New Zealand was ahead of its time in these big outdoor events because they literally created a set, a massive set. It wasn't on a stage, it was actually on the football field, and they created this um, Spanish village. Uh, and I played the role of Escamillo in Carmen, uh, which is the bullfighter. And it was a huge production. We had a full orchestra out there and this, these massive, this massive village, and I had to ride a horse. And I was no horseman, I can assure you. And um, so I had horse lessons, or I had riding lessons. And in um, the big final dress rehearsal, which was open to about 5,000 members of the public, I rode onto the field onto the, onto the field did my aria, I had to jump back on my horse, and I was supposed to ride off into the distance and up the hill. Anyway, getting back on my horse, my foot slipped out of the stirrup, and the horse got spooked, and it took off, and I'm holding onto it. I'm literally holding his neck, and I go past my mate, a guy called Judd Arthur, who was a fantastic horseman, who was in fits of hysterics <laughs> as I'm flying past, And it actually threw me off. It went up on its hind legs. It had gotten. It was so spooked by me. It got up on its hind legs, and I ended up on my backside on the ground with the, you know, the medical staff running towards me with a Red Cross bucket, you know, Red Cross tin. I was absolutely fine. I was absolutely fine. (laughs) I was just mortified. I was mortified. I'd fallen off this thing. Um, beautiful. It was the most beautiful animal. It was the most beautiful animal. But, yeah, I was no horseman, I'm sure. <laughs> you. Actually, and Mark Todd, can I say, Mark Todd, who was one of New Zealand's greatest horsemen, at the start of the production, they actually had, a, in the overture, they had a massive parade of these amazing horses being ridden around the stadium. And Mark Todd was in my Toreador outfit, and then I come on, I must have looked like a poor cousin. I was <laughs> terrible anyway
1: there's uh, there's lots of stories about haunted theaters in stage law. Have you come across any in your travels?
0: Uh, yeah I have actually, and one of them actually one of them's in australia uh, well there, there are two in australia actually there's the one in the there's a the princess and the stranger. They're both called the Princess Theatre. There's the Princess Theatre in Melbourne, which is supposedly haunted. But there's one which I was you know, <laughs> quite an interesting story. It was I was performing in the Princess Theatre in Launceston, and I was doing a Christmas concert tour. And it was just a very small production. Anyway, every and we were going to these lovely old theatres, and every theatre I went to, I liked to find something out about the theatre. Before as the show started, I'd always say to the, the, the audience that, you know, this is the oldest theatre in Tasmania, for example, which was the Hobart one. Or Whereas in Launceston, I said, do you know that I'm told that this is haunted? And there's a, a the, the ghost is called the Lavender Lady, and she was actually playing the role of the Merry Widow in a show, and the story goes that she fell into the orchestra pit in performance and fatally broke her neck, and she now haunts the terrible story, but she now haunts the theatre, Anyway, so I tell the story and then we get on with the concert. Now two thirds of the way through the product through the first half, all the microphones start going weird. They all just go weird. Wouldn't work, I'm in and out, in and out. Anyway, I go and speak to the sound crew at halftime and just say, What was going on? And they said, Oh my goodness, our board just started going, you know, flashing red lights. We couldn't do anything about it. It was just strange. They said, We think it was Frank, <laughs> the other ghost. I think it's Frank. Give me a I think it's Frank. <laughs> I said, the Frank, other ghost. Yeah. They said, you didn't mention Frank, and I think you've upset him. <laughs> so I got on stage and started the second half, and I said, Look, I'd just like to acknowledge Frank because I think our microphones, he might have got the pip and was mucking around our microphones. Anyway, we had, a, we had a clean run the second half. <laughs>
1: Frank forgave you. I
0: believe in ghosts. I am, an, I am a ghost believer. Yeah. Have,
1: have you had encounters beyond Frank and the Lavender Lady?
0: I think I have. I and I, I may sound, I may sound odd, but I truly believe that I've seen a ghost. And I, and I would never have been a ghost believer, but until I thought I'd seen one.
1: Are you at yeah. liberty to to share this tale, Teddy? Because we can't have you saying things like that and then not not sharing the story. <laughs> what happened?
0: Okay. I was. I was actually, I was staying over. It was when I was in, just starting a guild I was staying with my family. I had my, my dad's family. Who, he was, wasn't there at the time. He was passed away. But in a village down in Kent. And during the Black Plague, a lot of the villages were burned, but the churches were left standing. And I ended up, and I would go and rehearse, and I loved to, I loved to go and rehearse in the village churches because they were such beautiful places, and I went to this one, which was just standing by itself in the middle of a field in England, in the village. And it was on dusk. And I was going, I was standing in there. And it had this, they're quite eerie places, you know. Um, and this was out on its own. And I was thought, OK, I'll go in there. It was just on dusk. And I didn't have the lights on. And I was just, I thought I was singing the foyer. So I was singing Handel's Messiah. I was practicing Handel's Messiah. And I just got this overwhelming weird feeling come over me and I, this is where it gets really weird because I'm now going to sound like I'm crazy and I turned around and I swear to this day that I just saw this shadow go all the way up the aisle from the back of the church up to the, up to the altar and I freaked and I stood there in absolute silence and I thought okay I'm just going to go and I left but I was singing Hand of the Messiah which is a very, you know, religious piece and I definitely believe it was and I I I I really do believe in those things. I mean I've had quite a few experiences where I've had sensations that I need to call someone, you know, literally for no reason at all I call them and something's been happening and you think my goodness I reckon I really do believe we have a spiritual sense that we can that there are things that transcend us that we don't know about.
1: It's powerful that you had that experience when singing too because it's, singing's an invocation, isn't it? It's a summoning up. It's, it's, if, if a ghost is going to appear to you, I think it should appear to you while you're <laughs> singing the Messiah in a, in a church hall that stands from the Black Plague.
0: Well, that's what I thought. That's exactly what my, was exactly my thought. Yeah, I, I, I do think, interesting, when Handel wrote that and he wrote the Amen Chorus because I think Handel was a very religious man and he uh, there's a blurb or a thing that he wrote about how he wrote the Messiah and he said when he wrote the Amen Chorus it was like it was a out of body experience when he talked about it that as he was writing the music he just saw the heavens above open to him and the, effectively the music just came out in him. And so he was sort of praising his own writing but he wasn't in a way, he was saying it came from somewhere else and you know, that's what I was singing. So I think there's something in that. I mean, I, I guess I'm spiritual, so that's, that was really what it was.
1: You mentioned that you began singing in a more serious way or, or a determined way when you were in your 30s, and this is a mm-hmm. career that's continued now over however many decades. You, you're in your mid-50s. How has your voice changed as you've gotten older? What do you notice?
0: Well, it's older. It really is older. And what's an older
1: voice compared to a younger one? What's different? Look,
0: physically, you know, your chords become a little bit thicker, I think, certainly as an older older male singer. And also the muscles in your body, the body, which, because singing is a very muscular, you know, takes a lot of control. And so things like... My vibrato is different. My vibrato is much slower now than what it was because it's just harder. Con- I mean, I find it hard to control these days. Um, it's it's heavier, of course. I can't do all the light singing that I once was able to do, just because you have the beauty in the voice and when it's youthful. Just like any other muscle in your body, it gets it starts to get a bit old, you know. And but having said that. For the sort of music that I would do these days, I think it's wonderful because I get to play the you know, the dark you know protagonist roles, really, I guess or what I do these days, and there's a I love the character that you get in an older voice, you know it doesn't have the beauty that it once had or the beauty of you know the beauty of youth is is fantastic, but the wisdom and the age and that's in an old voice is equally as wonderful, just in a different way, you know.
1: What about your presence on stage? How's that changed uh, as you've gotten older? Uh,
0: Probably pretty similar to the the way the voice has in a way. I think your life experience and and wisdom gives you uh, a much greater gravitas. And I always think that, I mean, I look back when I was a young singer and even watching Young Singers Today, um, and youth and it's just a, it's just a character of youth that you get on stage and you think that to express you have to move so everything is done with you know great movement and and sometimes the movement can get in the way of everything else that you're trying to do or can actually get in the way of the character but as an older singer i find you can just walk on stage and just stand there and there's a presence which can just emanate from you because you carry wisdom of age, I think. Um, and so I guess I do a lot less, probably because I'm physically incapable, but <laughs> I was doing, um, I was playing a singing Escamillo at a gala concert, a big outdoor gala event in uh, Perth a few years ago. And, you know, I was, I was 50 by then. And um, I, I felt a bit odd singing Escamillo at 50 because he's supposed to be the swashbuckling Bullfighter that appears and wins the heart of Carmen. <laughs> I always think a fifty. My, you know, me walking as a fifty-year-old is—it's not going to be that. Anyway, I had to jump. They, they had me sitting now, when you get to the big chorus, I want you to jump off this table. And I said, jump off the table? You've got to be kidding. I, I needed someone to help me down. So there are, when you get older, you just, there are things you just don't want to do. So I will not, I will not sing Escamillo ever again. Not, not in performance, for sure. Not, not even if to... they
1: bring you a horse?
0: <laughs> not even they, look I doubt that even I doubt anyone would even think of asking me to do it again now they have to be a, you know they're not going to do that
1: Teddy, it's been such a delight to speak with you I'm really glad that you followed that advice in that letter and accountancy's loss is is music's gain. Thank you for being my guest on conversations
0: Oh Sarah, thanks so much it's been, it's been lovely.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. If you like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator, and the Queen of Common Sense Parenting. You may have heard me on Conversations before, a few times, but did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So If you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.